0: I'm J.G. Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson, in a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire and National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by our wonderful sponsors at the $10 tier and above of my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Once again, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. Producers credit shoutouts to Mark Arland, Spartacus, Gunner, Ed, Gratz, James, Mickey, Dan, Brian, The Warnerd, The 42 Group, Nick, Emilia, Chase, Chris, Orc, Black Tuna, Nobody, David, Holland, Martin, Stu, Jeffrey, Thomas, Elliot, Colin, Michael, Matthew Ho, Brace Belden, Transnatural Pod, Galen, Justin, Nick W, Chance, and The Mere M-E-E-R Project. If you'd like to join those listeners in getting your very own producer's credit on each and every edition of Parallax Views, consider joining them in supporting me at the $10 tier or above on my Patreon page at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, patreon.com slash views And now, on to the show. Hey there, Parallax listeners. On this edition of the program, we have two segments with two great guests. Later on in the program, we'll be talking to Women's Liberation Movement organizer Jenny Brown, author of such books as Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. And Jenny will be talking with us about Roe vs. Wade, Abortion Rights, and the ruling classes' view on abortion over the decades. But first, union organizer Daisy Pitkin, who's helping with the Starbucks union wave, joins us to discuss her fascinating and heartfelt memoir Online, a story of class solidarity and two women's epic fight to build a union. This is a conversation you're not going to want to miss. It is about the labor struggle, the struggle for workers' rights and achieving a better tomorrow for those workers. All that and much more with Daisy Pitkin, author of On the Line, a story of class, solidarity, and two women's epic fight to build a union. Welcome to Parallax Views, the guest that I'm really, really excited to be speaking with. Daisy Pitkin, uh, longtime uh, labor organizer, union organizer, and author of the really fascinating memoir. In a way, I, I would say it goes beyond being a memoir. It's a, it's a love story, it's many things. It's, it's an evocative and just thoughtful story. Uh, and the book is on the line. A story of class solidarity and two women's epic fight to build a union. How are you doing today?
1: I'm great. I'm really happy to be here. Thanks for having me. So, if you could, maybe you could tell my listeners
0: uh, how you got into, uh, you know, the world of, of of unions, because I think that's always an interesting uh, topic uh, to tackle. You know, for instance, uh, you know, I, I'm familiar with unions just because uh, I had family that were. involved in unions. So maybe you could tell a little bit about your story and how you became aware of unions. I I believe you were originally from uh, Ohio,
1: right? Yeah, I grew up way out in the country in Northwest Ohio. There were unions around. None of my family members were members of them, but there was a Ford stamping plant kind of in the next town over. Um, There was a cannery, a tomato cannery that was union and they would go on strike from time to time. So I was kind of aware of unions, but not very involved. Um, When I was an undergraduate student in the Twin Cities, I started getting really interested in learning about the conditions under which college apparel was made. Um, That was in the late 90s. And there was a movement of students really all across the country who were working to try to help workers improve conditions in sweatshops that made you know, the sweatshirts and sweatpants and t-shirts for colleges. And we realized as students that we had some power and and some responsibility in that equation because we were the ones who were going to either be buying or not buying college apparel. Um, And so we could, if we wanted to, act in support of workers who were trying to improve conditions in in those factories all around the world that made those garments. So I got involved with the kind of student anti-sweatshop movement of that time. And I was really committed to that work, really passionate about it. And I learned a lot about organizing through it. But then in my senior year of college, some workers organized a union at a Holiday Inn Express. And their manager, after they won their union election, called the INS and had seven of the housekeepers arrested pending deportation. And The rest of the workers went on a strike to support them. And the community really rose up to me, seemingly spontaneously, in support of these workers. There were marches and rallies and candlelight vigils. And seeing the power of that community come together around these workers and their fundamental right to form a union was really moving to me. It changed me. And I knew that I wanted to be kind of involved in worker organizing fights here in this country. And not long after I went to work for a union called Unite, and we started organizing with industrial laundry workers in Arizona.
0: So I want to get more into that specific campaign because the the basis of this book. Uh, but but first, you know, it's it's interesting. Uh, while I was reading this book, I was thinking about how, you know, I've, I've always been very um, pro-union. And, and like I said, that's probably because of my, my grandpa being in a union. But it, it was interesting when I started college, uh, you know, like what, 10 years ago and I, I graduated a while back, but I, I remember you know, I, I would be pro-union and people would say, are unions even a thing still? Or they, they would just uh, start bringing up Jimmy Hoffa or these sort of negative uh, caricatures, right? Uh, Uh But now we're in this whole different world where I see like young people calling themselves Generation U, uh, U as in union. What do you think has led to the
1: big change? Um, First of all, I'm glad that you are noticing this trend because I think it's real. There's a real groundswell of energy for union organizing. And it's you know, revitalizing the labor movement as a whole and changing it, and also um, really just showing us that it's possible to act collectively and build power even in the face of these multi-billion-dollar corporations—Starbucks, Amazon, many others. Right? It's exciting. It's an exciting moment, and to see so many young people calling themselves Generation U, Generation Union, I think is is uh, really powerful. But I think part of what has changed is, you know, young people especially are kind of staring down the future and seeing some really difficult paths. There's kind of a fork in the road, I think. Um, One of the organizing committee members that I work with here in Pittsburgh, who is a young person and is involved in this kind of Generation U movement, was telling me this, that, you know we're sitting here looking at the future and we think either we're going to have a livable planet or we're not. Either we're going to have increased economic disparity and the very wealthiest people taking all of the wealth and, or we're not. Either we're going to have crushing student debt or we're not. Either we're not going to be able to go to the doctor when we get older, or we're going to have universal healthcare. You know, it's a very stark um, crossroads that, that young people are facing. And it's existential. It really is sort of, you know, um, we have to make decisions about which path we're going to head down right now, right now. And help is not coming. <laughs> if anyone's going to make the change, it has to be us. And I think people saw the, the victories that have been happening um, in terms of union organizing. And it seems like a concrete thing that they can do right now, right? I can organize with my coworkers and make this change at work. And it's gonna lead to other change down the road. It's gonna lead to a mass collective action movement that can really change the world. Um, You can tell I'm like, I am so moved by this um, that I I get emotional even talking about it because it's really inspiring. So
0: it's really interesting to me, Uh, you mentioned how uh, you know, the help isn't coming. We're going to have to sort of organize ourselves. And I think uh, one thing that really uh, shines through uh, with your book is that, you know, the, the odds in so many ways have been uh, put against us, right? I mean, it's, it's hard to even organize. <laughs> um, just the right to organize is almost a fight. Uh, could you uh, speak to labor law in America and, and how? that uh, has changed over the years and, and how you know we have obstacles that we face because of it.
1: Yeah, <clears throat> labor law in this country is really broken and like irrevocably broken. Um, we have a labor law that was written in 1935 called the National Labor Relations Act. Um, and it was a law that was passed at a time when workers in every sector, in every region of the country were taking radical mass collective action. Um, to improve their conditions at work, massive strikes. At one point before the NLRA was passed, 280,000 workers in Pittsburgh alone were on strike. I mean, crippling strikes because workers were coming together and making demands in a very loud collective voice, right? And in order to sort of uh, quell that strife, employers and lawmakers got together and decided to create a law that would make it easier for people to form unions. And the NLRA was a law to quash really um, mass labor action and make it easier for people to join unions without having to go on strike. And at that point, union density, the number of people who were members of unions rose really dramatically, right? Um, and that happened for a, a few decades But 12 years after the NLRA was passed, half of the core protections for workers' rights that it it outlined were stripped away when the Taft-Hartley Act was passed in 1947, right? And then since 1947, the, the remaining rights protected by the NLRA have seen this kind of death by a thousand cuts in subsequent legislation, and legal decisions that set precedents just sort of right, right after right has been sort of stripped away. We're at a place right now in labor law where we have about the same amount of protections as before there was a labor law in the first place, meaning workers' rights um, are not protected by the law by and large. There are so many loopholes in labor law And there's a vast industry of union busting, very expensive lawyers that get hired by companies to drive the company straight through the loopholes in the law, right? Um, And workers' rights are so unprotected right now that it's so difficult to organize and win um, improvements at work without mass collective action that we're basically back to a place where we were 100 years ago in terms of workers' rights. Yeah,
0: I just wanted to say I think it it shows that you know it's not enough to think that we're going to be able to legislate our way out of the problem. Uh, we we do need that that collective action and that organizing uh, to really you know make the change happen.
1: I think that's exactly right. We need mass collective action. We need mass collective action to even get to a place where someone is considering legislating a solution. Right? We won't even get the legislated solution without mass collective action, because that's what it took the first time, that's what it's gonna take again. Um, There are not lawmakers sitting in Washington, DC, or not many of them, there are a few, but there are not enough of them sitting around thinking about making labor law better that it's just gonna happen on its own. It would take mass collective action for the legislation to even pass.
0: It it sort of takes, um, not to interrupt you, but it, it sort of takes an external sort of pressure Uh, to make make things happen in D.C. at times.
1: Absolutely. Um, And look, it's going to in the meantime, you know, I'm not sitting around twiddling my thumbs waiting for labor legislation to be passed. Right. It would be nice if there were laws that genuinely protected the fundamental right of collective bargaining and forming a union. Right. But we're not going to sit around and and wait for it and hold our breath for it. We're going to take mass collective action to make the demands that we need from the companies that employ millions of workers across the country. So
0: in regards to the story you tell in this book, maybe you could get into what you uh, did during this campaign as a a staff organizer, because I think, uh, you know, I think people can have a romantic image of that kind of thing. And I think there's also the other side to it, where you're just sort of doing the grind, uh, so to speak. Uh, could you speak to that a little bit and the the sort of trials and tribulations of it?
1: Yeah, I don't blame people for having a romantic view of it. I think I I did, and you know, there are still times when I have a romantic view of of what it is that union organizers do. Um, but the truth is that it really is a it's a grind. It's a kind of a frenetic. Um, it's a grind at a frenetic pace. It's constant, um, there are, the stakes are very high. And so the commitment level of organizers tends to be very high. Um, we work um, many, many hours a day um, because we wanna support workers who are risking their livelihoods in order to form unions, right? It's, um, it's a big responsibility to be in a position where you're supporting people who are risking so much um but the you know the the grind i think is where i laugh about the grind because a lot of it is sort of the boring repetitive kind of unsexy tasks of organizing making leaflets and copying the leaflets and handing out the leaflets and driving in circles trying to find um workers and people's co-workers to talk to them about forming the union Um, setting up for union meetings, cleaning up after union meetings. Um, But all of that, and I, I try to convey this in my book, all of that work is actually where the really important stuff happens. The really important stuff on union organizing doesn't happen in those cinematic moments that we kind of tend to focus on when we tell stories about union fights and union victories. The important work is what gets built in the meantime, in the path along the way to those more cinematic moments. The, like getting out the folding chairs and setting them up in a circle so that people come to the meeting and sit down and talk to each other, putting the folding chairs back in the trunk of the car to drive them back to the union hall. Like all of that is time that people are spending together. And that, that time, those minutes, those hours where the little tasks are happening kind of around the margins, that's where solidarity and trust um, and care really gets built, which is the, the substance of power inside of a union. Once you have a sort of system of mutual aid among a community of workers, then really no matter what vicious anti-union tactics or messaging or threats a company throws at them, they're going to be able to withstand it because they built something together, right? Um, So in my book, I focus a lot on those tasks because I think they're really important. I think it's the substance of organizing.
0: Yeah. And it's interesting. I love that you tell certain stories um, just with the people you're organizing with, with the rank and file workers, uh, you know, uh, where I think there's a story, if I recall correctly, where you learn uh, to salsa dance, and uh, you know, you you help kids with their homework that or their parents are involved with the the union efforts. Um, could you talk just about the the importance there of really getting to know people on a sort of personal level, because that is, I think, what builds the trust uh, necessary for for this kind of um, you know campaigning, and I, I think sometimes that gets lost in the shuffle because of, well, you sort of deal with it in the book, but uh, I I think there's this idea that we we all need our uh, righteous anger, which I I do think righteous anger is uh, necessary, but there's also uh, something more that we need. We need solidarity.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, You know, the campaign that I write about in my book took years to win. Um, And part of telling the story of that campaign is to illustrate the ways in which labor law is broken, which we've already talked about, right? But in the years of that fight, um, a lot of really miraculous things happened. And part of what happened was this group of workers came together and really got to know each other through the time that they had to spend together organizing themselves around the fight. So, yeah, at one point there is a scene where I tried to learn to salsa dance, not very well. <laughs> but after spending so much time with people in their homes, um, you get to know a lot. Um, there was a real kind of human exchange, both between me as a staff organizer and the workers that I was working with, but also um, between them, there was a, a real network of deep trust and solidarity that was that was built. Um, at the end of the day, the fight was about whether or not we were going to be able to legally force the company to recognize the union that the workers had built. But there was never a question about whether or not they had a union; they had one, um, and you know they just had to get to a point where they could force the company to negotiate a contract with them. But the union was there, um, and it was undeniable. In those moments where they were, people were teaching each other to sew, they were trading oranges and feeding each other, and you know bringing food to the potluck and laughing together and helping each other's family members um, with tasks and moving and yard work and all of that, right? And I think that there's a question at the heart of my book and it's about what is it that causes some people to be able to to get involved in a fight and then sustain it for the years that it takes to win a union in this country? And there are a couple of different theories about that, that arise in the book, um, mostly from different organizers and different organizing cultures that I came into contact with as a new organizer. But I think at the end of the day, what what I imagine to be true is that there there is anger in organizing, right? Anger is often the first emotion that sparks a will to fight in someone. Something is wrong at work. I have to work in dangerous conditions for very little money, and that's wrong, and I'm mad about it, right? And I'm going to stand up with my coworkers and fight. I think that anger is often the initial motivating force, that righteous indignation, and it can serve as a sort of engine to a fight. But I think that it's hard to maintain that level of anger or indignation for years, that can't be the only emotion that drives a fight because it's not sustainable. People burn out on anger. And instead what has to happen and what does happen on organizing fights that are that are good, strong fights, I think, is that people build another kind of community together and it's around hope and care and love. And those emotions are what sustain people for the long-term in a fight when they start to care really deeply about their coworkers and can imagine what good a fight will do, you know?
0: So I I want to come back to that, but first, I I guess something that I wanted to talk about with you is what do you think the pitfalls you experienced as an organizer were? Because, you know, there's points in the book that get into the sort of uh, the fissures between you know, a, a staff organizer for a union, and then the rank and file workers. So what are the, some of the pitfalls you encountered in this campaign? And also, uh, what can we learn um, from those experiences that you had?
1: Yeah, I think another sort of idea in the book is about the role of a staff organizer, someone like me who's paid to help workers lead campaigns and win them, right? And, um, there are, there are a lot of um, dynamics at play in the relationship between someone who's a staff organizer, whose job it is to organize workers into a fight, and the role of the workers themselves, who, um, you know, many of them become leaders of the campaigns and their work sites. Um, I write in particular about one of them in my book, Alma, who is one of the fiercest worker leaders I've ever met. Um, and I think a lot in the book about the difference between our roles. My role was to organize her. I was paid to help her lead this fight. I didn't have any risk, right? I was not going to lose my job for organizing her factory. Um, but she was taking on a lot of risk. I mean, people do not work in industrial laundries unless they have to, They need those jobs in order to live and they can't afford to lose them. And so in that um, kind of calculus, deciding to stand up with your coworkers is assuming an immense amount of risk. And I think a lot about that difference. What does it mean and what is my role as a staff organizer to march people right into a risky situation without taking on any risk myself, right? There's There's a power difference there that doesn't often get interrogated on union campaigns. And I think it should because staff organizers, the the language that we use when we're talking to workers about the union that they're forming, the stories that we tell, the tactics that we encourage them to employ, all of that gives shape to the union that they end up forming, that they end up making up the rank and file of at the end of the day. It's a position of power, whether I want it to be or not. It is, and I was not trained as a new organizer to examine that role, and I think it does a disservice to the labor movement to have that role go unexamined. Um, we ought to think about it, um, and so I, I hope that my book encourages that kind of critical thought about the role of staff organizer.
0: Yeah, I feel like it encourages us to, encourages us to think about you know, a union can have many experts that are trying to help it along, right? But ultimately you wanna sort of democratize the expertise and, and teach uh, people, the workers themselves, uh, how to organize. Uh, like, like you don't want the, the focus to necessarily just be on, on the organizers. You eventually want the workers to sort of be able to do the, the same thing as well if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I think, you know, I now after 20 years of organizing, I have a lot of experience. I have some expertise that I think can really um, be supportive of workers who decide that they want to organize their workplace. But there's also power in expertise. And if I guard that expertise, if I keep all of it to my to myself, then then I remain in a position of power through an exercise where workers are trying to build a democratic workplace and a democratic organization so that they can have a voice at work, right? So 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 in other words,
0: if you don't sort of share that power, it becomes too, the whole structure ends up becoming very top-down.
1: Yeah, the whole structure ends up being top-down and it ends up replacing what's already a top-down structure that workers have at work, right? It's not, it doesn't, um, it doesn't deconstruct the kind of um, authoritarian top-down structure at work. It just replaces it with another one. And really what we need to do is democratize the expertise and skills that we have as staff organizers and then get out of the way so that workers can do the building um, of their own organization so that it is and can be and can remain for the long term a really democratic structure.
0: Yeah, it's it's interesting. I've I've heard some of your interviews since the um, the sort of Starbucks union wave. And one thing uh, that I really respect about um, how you've approached some of those interviews is that you you really don't want to make it about yourself. I mean, we're here promoting your book, but I, I think you always uh, put the spotlight back on uh, the, the workers uh, and just the union itself. You know, it's you seem to have a very clear understanding that it it sort of takes a village, so to speak.
1: I think it, well, it absolutely does. And also the, the true nature of that campaign is that it is being driven by Starbucks workers. They are organizing themselves and each other, more so than on any campaign I've ever imagined. I didn't think I would see a campaign like this in my lifetime. Um, and I think that our role as staff organizers on the campaign, of whom really there are only a handful, it really is being run by workers um, with the support of a few people like me um, who have the great honor of working on the campaign and supporting them, right? My only job on that campaign is to help workers connect with each other and communicate with each other, help them connect with resources from the union, legal, administrative, otherwise, right? And then get out of the way and let them do the organizing. Um, And I think that that kind of organic momentum that is created through a union campaign that's run in that way is something that is unstoppable by the company. I think the company doesn't understand the nature of the momentum that they're facing. And that's what gives the campaign its power, right? And if I were to step in with a team of other kind of pro organizers and start steering the campaign in certain directions um, in a top-down kind of way, I think it would kill that momentum. I think it would kill the momentum and then it would strip the campaign of its power. It would strip the movement of its power. Um, that would be the one thing I think that could stop the campaign is if, if the union came in in a top-down Bigfoot kind of way and quashed the momentum. So I feel like my entire job on the campaign is really just to feed resources and stay out of the way. (laughs) It's remarkable.
0: (laughs) So I just had a a few more brief questions here. I guess the the next thing I wanted to ask about, um, you know, the the book itself is very evocative and, you know, it's, it's much more than, than uh, just a a retelling of, of a struggle. There's, 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 it gets very personal and very, I I would say it's an intimate sort of look at everything. And, you know, I I wanted to get into the sort of literary aspects of On the Line. Uh, Specifically, uh, I was impressed by the way you, you sort of Use the word "you" uh, within the narrative. You you sort of bring the reader into it, and and also I wanted to talk about that as well as uh, the sort of way that moths uh, play a role in the book. Could you speak to those two elements?
1: Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, yeah, I there's a, the main kind of narrative structure of the the book is the the story of this organizing campaign at an industrial laundry in Phoenix. And I mentioned that the main worker leader there was a woman named Alma, who was a really close um, sort of comrade and friend of mine. Over the years of the campaign, we got close to each other. But that closeness was complicated by the fact that I was a staff organizer, and she was a worker leader um, for all the reasons that I described a few minutes ago. and you know, by the end of the book, there's there's are some there's some strife that happens inside the union that she helped to found. And it causes a rift between us. And we went for years without speaking to each other. And I generated a lot of the material for the book during those years in a time when I was really missing her and trying to process and parse what had gone on in the union. Um, And a lot of that material just naturally came out um, in this second person address to her because I was thinking about her. um, And because she was the only other person who really knew what that campaign felt like from the inside. So I use that second person address because, um, because there is an intimacy there. And I think that the union was really built out of that intimacy. And I kept it in the, when, when that material sort of started taking the shape of a book because I wanted to indicate to readers that there is an intimacy here that's important to the story. I know that second person address is often controversial in nonfiction writing for very good reasons. Um, but I, I wanted it to exist in the book because of that um, kind of inviting people to, to understand the kind of intimacy that exists on a campaign, I think. Um, well, I'm,
0: I'm glad you broke the rules there a bit by using the you there, so
1: <laughs> in the oh, I'm glad that it, it resonated with you. I think, um, I didn't really know how to write it in any other sort of way because it really was, um, you know, it was it was meant, a lot of the words in the book were really meant originally for Oma. So she of course gave permission for me to publish publish it later. And the moths themselves, I know it's, um, I think, um, you know, it's an, it's an odd element to have in a book about a union campaign, that there are moths. And I think a lot about their biology and their role in mythology and the strange ways that they intersect with the earliest moments of labor resistance, both in this country and abroad. Could you explain Um, that a little bit? Yeah, so the moths are in the book because they were real. They were a real part of the campaign, first of all. That, you know, when we started the campaign at Almost Factory, there was a strange kind of infestation of miller moths in Phoenix. There was a mass emergence of miller moths. And a lot of the organizing that we did was in the parking lot across from her factory at night because her factory was... 24 hours a day operation. And so we would hold shift meetings in the parking lot under the floodlights. And you know, you have a infestation of moths and you're under a floodlight at night. There's, they're everywhere. The sound of them, um, seeing them, they were all over the ground, all over the light fixtures. Um, and at one point Alma and I started calling ourselves Las Polillas, the moths, um, as a play on Las Mariposas, the butterflies. Um, who were the Mirabal sisters who um, resisted the Trujillo dictatorship in the Dominican Republic. And I've been reading a book, Julia Alvarez's In the Time of the Butterflies at the motel. So Alma and I started calling ourselves Las Polillas kind of as a joke that we were like the ugly cousins of the Mirabal sisters grinding out our organizing in South Phoenix. Um, But the, the moths then take the shape in the book, because in real life, after I left the union for a while, um, kind of heartbroken and burned out and sick, really physically ill, uh, I started thinking a lot about moths and making these like elaborate, very bad art projects. About moths to these community art classes that I was taking. And I think I thought that it was a way to like not think about what happened with the union. Um, but of course I was just indirectly thinking about what happened with the union and about Alma. Um, and I started researching moths as a part of these art projects and kind of learned some strange facts about their navigational strategies, about why they tend to fly into light and into flames. Um, or I learned at one point that You know, the first uprising of workers in all of industrialization happened in Lyon, France, when workers who were called canutes, which is a French word named for a silk bobbin. They were silk weavers and they um, went on strike. They rose up actually and took over the the city, built barricades and held off the French army um, for a time. And as a part of that, you know, there was a massive sericulture operation connected to these, um, the silk industry, where women mostly bred moths. And there's sort of this strange, um, mystical way in which they um, gathered the knowledge that they needed to learn how to keep the silk moths alive and breed them generation after generation. And I write about those women. Um, And, you know, there are some other moments where moths appear in the book, one of them being about the peppered moth in early industrial England. The moth sort of became one of the first and best examples of Darwinian evolution because the moth, which was kind of white with black specks originally, um, when, you know, Manchester became very covered in industrial gunk and soot. In, during industrialization over about 30 years, the moth just completely changed color and was there was a dark bodied version of the moth that started appearing. Um, so I like to think about the moth as kind of a harbinger of industrial trouble in the book. So there are all these sort of odd connections, at least in my mind, between moths and what's happening in the rest of the narrative in the book. So they they do appear.
0: So I, I know we're running up against uh, the 40-minute mark here, but uh, I just wanted to ask uh, one more thing and, and then get your close, closing thoughts. Um, I, I guess uh, in the second chapter, you talk about the, the triangle fire, and it, it's a really interesting chapter because you talk about how you were taught uh, how to teach that to workers, and uh, you sort of end up, I think, in some ways, questioning uh, you know, uh, how we... How you've been taught things, uh, or not entirely questioning, but you you sort of question the ways in which um, maybe we we think about a lot of these stories, like the Triangle uh, Fire, almost uh, in a sort of a stoic, sort of uh, indignation, sort of way. And I, I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about that and. Uh, you know, there's also another emotional element to it, uh, other than just that sort of righteous anger.
1: Yeah, you know, a lot of union organizing is storytelling. And some of the stories that organizers are taught to tell have to do with the history of the union that workers are joining. And the union that I worked for, that I work for again now, Um, was an offshoot of the legendary International Ladies Garment Workers Union. And some of the foundational events in that union's history were the uprising of the 20,000, which happened in 1909, and the Triangle Shirtwaist Factory Fire, which killed 146 Mm -hmm. workers, mostly teenage girls, in 1911. And I was taught to tell those stories as a new organizer, and I told them over and over. And I'm kind of fascinated in the first place with that kind of ritualistic storytelling and what it does on a campaign. Why is it that we are taught to tell these stories? What does it mean to tell them over and over? What, are, what emotion are we supposed to be evoking in workers who listen to us tell these stories? Um, why is it that we tell the stories in a way that we imagine will move workers to, to action and does the storytelling actually do that? And that kind of tangle of questions exists in my book. And I try to sort of pull them apart a little bit and examine the role of storytelling in union organizing, but then also look at those two stories in particular and the version that I was taught to tell versus the sort of more complex and nuanced reality of what happened. Um, you know, in one of the, the stories, there is a young woman named Clara Lemlich who sparked the uprising of the 20,000, the story goes, when she was hoisted up onto the stage at a mass union meeting, an anonymous wisp of a girl, as she was later reported to be. And she called for a general strike from the stage, and the next day, 20,000 people followed her into the street which is such an odd way to tell that story. I mean, when you think about what is the story supposed to mean in a contemporary union meeting setting, what emotion is that supposed to evoke in workers? I mean, it's a story about a hero, for sure. But this sort of anonymous hero who just springs up out of nowhere, jumps up on a stage and calls for a strike and people follow her into the street. Are, like, is the story supposed to inspire workers today to Imagine themselves in the same role, that they'll jump up anonymously onto a stage and call for a strike, and people will follow them into the street. It's crazy. It's ridiculous. It's not something that workers do imagine themselves in. So I started thinking a lot about what what are we doing when we tell this story, and why do we tell it in this way? And the more I dig into the story of Clara Lemlich, you know, I of course discover that that's not actually true at all. Clara Lemlich was not anonymous. She was a worker leader like Alma was. She had organized strike committees in nearly 500 garment shops across New York City in the years prior to that mass meeting. All the workers there knew who she was. They knew she was gonna call for a strike and they already knew they were gonna follow her into the street the next day. There was a plan that had been carefully constructed and that clara was a part of and that all of those workers were a part of right so telling the story in the in the way that i first told it decontextualizes it from the hard work of organizing and when i'm standing in front of a group of workers today and i you know i'm asking them to join with each other in the hard work of organizing a union and i know it's going to be a long difficult process and they're gonna to have to be involved in every step of the daily grind of getting through that campaign. What does it mean to tell the story in this way that someone jumps up onto a stage, everyone goes on strike and bada boom, bada bing, you win. <laughs>
0: yeah, it's, it's almost like you're telling the story in like, a, um, like, like, like that, that, version, that version, the, the anonymous uh, sort of version, you end up telling the story in a way that's almost like kind of, it's kind of cold. Whereas uh, the other way to tell it uh, it's very personal, very emotional and I, I think it sort of sparks a fire.
1: I think so too. And I think it tell it does us a disservice to tell the story as if this thing just happened sort of magically. This strike just sort of happened as this either dumb luck or some kind of like piece of magic that happened, right? And. It's not true. what happened was very good, very difficult organizing work. Um, and I think if we focus more on on the second part of the story, then it actually is more inspiring to workers who are undertaking their own difficult organizing work, right. Um, so I, I try to pull that story apart and tell it in you know in greater detail in my book because because I think that it's actually more inspiring that way rather than the, the magical version of this um, anonymous woman leading us all into the revolution.
0: <laughs> so in closing here, I, I think we face like so many uh, obstacles going forward, um, not not just with uh, you know union struggles, but with things like climate change. And I always have to ask at the end and you seem like the perfect per- perfect person to ask this because you seem uh, you know, like someone that has a lot of fire and energy and uh, you know, a belief that we can do better. Uh, so I guess, what do you say to those people that, that are like pessimistic and are thinking, uh, what's the point? Because I, I think a lot of people uh, are really nervous in the times we live in. So how do you sort of keep the hope?
1: I think people are really nervous and rightfully so. I mean, we are facing it, it, this it is a it's a bleak landscape right now, right? There is not a lot of hope. But I'll say that I am almost never the most optimistic person in the room. <laughs> um, I'm not a cynical person. I'm just not um, I'm unsentimental. And I think that doesn't lend me to being very optimistic most of the time. And I, at this moment, am incredibly inspired by what I'm seeing. Um, it's real. There's a real movement being built from the bottom up right now. And, um, and I think that we're on, we're at the very beginning of a wave of change that's really meaningful and important.
0: And I guess, how can my listeners keep up with your work and, and uh, how can they purchase the book? Well, I, I would just tell them, like, I guess, uh local bookstores folks local bookstores don't go on the uh, big right. amazon website
1: <laughs> but you know you can buy there's a an, an amazing website called bookshop.org where you can purchase the book and the money actually goes to independent bookstores but you can buy it online and it ships to your house just as if you were ordering it from amazon um, so that's a really good resource but also your local book your local brick and mortar Independent bookstores are a good place to get it as well.
0: And, and uh, how can my listeners keep up with your work and the, and the work uh, you're doing with uh, the Unite offshoot?
1: Well, people can follow along with the Starbucks campaign uh, by following Starbucks Workers United on Twitter. Um, I also have a, an author website, daisypitkin.net that you can check out if you wonder where you can catch me.
0: Okay, thank you again, Daisy Pitkin, for coming on Parallax Views.
1: Thank you so much. This is really a lovely conversation. Appreciate it.
0: Next up, Women's Liberation Movement organizer Jenny Brown joins us to discuss Roe vs. Wade, abortion rights, and how the ruling class has viewed abortion over the years. So I want to get to this conversation right away. It's very interesting and gets into a lot of deep history concerning abortion rights and the ruling class and class struggle and how all of these things sort of are related. And it's, of course, a timely topic given what has been happening as of late with the Supreme Court and Roe Wade. So without any further ado, let's get right to it with Jenny Brown, author of, among other books, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. Welcome to Parallax Views, a guest that I'm very happy to have on the show, Uh, Jenny Brown, a member of uh, National Women's Liberation and author of such books as Shrike, The Hidden Fight Over Women's Work, and Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now, which uh, is a very relevant book at this moment. How are you doing today? Great. So I wanted to have you on the show because uh, I had someone recommend your book, uh, Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. And I'm curious just to get your, I guess, general thoughts on uh, Roe versus Wade and the uh, Alito draft opinion uh, on Rover suade
2: yeah well the first thing um, that that came to mind when I read the the opinion is that he's got the history completely wrong um, so that's one that was one amusing thing but um, but basically we've been expecting this you know there's been these charades around the Supreme Court justice hearings where everybody on all sides knows that it's a charade where where the, uh, you know, the nominee will say, oh, well, I, you know, I support, I support all these previous decisions and everybody knows they're lying. So, um, so it hasn't, it's not actually a surprise. I mean, by our calculations, six out of the nine justices are, are opposed to Roe. And the only reason that Chief Justice Roberts isn't Fully on board with this is that he's he fears it will undermine the reputation of the court, which is a valid fear because it looks like the court is getting less and less and less, um, uh, you know, revered by by the public. The the polls now, I think, show somewhere in the mid 60s, people think it's more political than about judging the law. So so he's worried about that. Now, what will we see? um There are about 13 states that have what they call trigger laws, which means that the moment the Supreme Court says that it's okay, they will automatically ban abortion, so they don't need to do any further um, legislative action. And then there are about another 12, and this is mostly in the South, uh, Upper Midwest, which have hostile legislatures and would probably, as soon as they can you know, as soon as the legislatures get into session, will pass draconian anti-abortion laws. So that will would be about half the country, um, both population-wise and in terms of the number of abortions.
0: Of course, we should note, even right now, even with Roe versus Wade, there's still a lot of uh, states with restrictions uh, right now. So there's always, uh, well, there's long been these issues of states trying to uh, I guess circumvent reverse weight in some ways.
2: Yeah, I mean the the restrictions have come thick and fast in the last twenty years, and but but the main restriction that you know is is sort of embarrassing is that we don't we don't actually have a right to abortion. We have the the right to you raise 500 bucks and try to go buy an abortion right so so when you look at um for example in argentina where they recently passed a law legalizing abortion up to 14 weeks because they have a national health system um the law says that they must provide the abortion to you within 10 days so like contrast that to here where we have Um, first of all, you got to raise the money and then you have a waiting period on top of that in many states. Um, So it's uh, and a a lot of people who get abortions after 20 weeks report that the reason is that they had to run around and raise the money. Right. Um, As you can imagine. So uh, so it's it's sort of embarrassing that the U.S. doesn't even has never even really had a right to abortion that um, places with a national healthcare system automatically had as soon as the abortion right was was put into effect.
0: So what do you think comes next for, uh, I guess, the struggle when it comes to uh, reproductive rights, um, you know, if slash when uh, Roe v Wade is, is overturned? And I guess even more importantly there, how can people organize in a, in a sort of post-Roe v Wade world?
2: Yeah, I mean, it's... Uh... So about half of U.S. states have pretty secure abortion laws. And so this is going to create this weird situation where your rights depend on where you live. Um, And so there are clinics in border states and places that have a good airline, like uh, cheap airline hubs, um, those states are likely to those clinics in those states are likely to get overwhelmed we already see texans under their six-week ban going to new mexico or oklahoma um, and and overwhelming the clinics there so so we're going to see sort of people who can afford to travel and can manage to you know get get it together so that their, their their family is taken care of while they're gone and everything People who can do that are going to be coming to the parts of the U.S. where where abortion is still legal. Now, we should note that if, you know, if you get a Republican legislature in with veto proof majorities and a Republican president, they could probably um, they could probably make abortion illegal throughout the country. That's not right now in the offing. But the thing that was preventing that was the court system and the court system is no longer going to stand in the way. So, so we also have that, um, that possibility. Um, I think uh, one of the things that is most interesting about this moment and makes it so different from the previous hundred years um, that we had illegal abortion is that there's now a much easier way to give yourself an abortion and that's abortion pills. Um, And so the, the a lot of the times that people had uh, you know bad health effects from getting illegal abortions in the 60s and, and prior decades were because it was like a surgical intervention and it didn't you know basically gave them an infection so or or some kind of um uh you know wound that basically became an infection so um so that resulted in like about 5000 deaths a year you know, it's hard to estimate these things because a lot of them, but, but most experts say four to 5,000 deaths a year from underground abortions. I don't think we're going to see that because abortion pills are so much more available. Um, and one of the things that we've seen, so there's the abortion pill is actually composed of two pills. There's, um, there's one that you take, uh, and up until recently, the FDA required you to take it in front of a uh, a medical practitioner. So that's uh, mifepristone, which people think of as like the French abortion pill. So you take that, and then 24 hours or more after that, you take misoprostol, which is um, uh, I'm sorry, misoprostol, which is the um, uh, basically makes gives you contractions and empties your womb. Now, misoprostol on its own is 85% effective in in uh causing an abortion and it's um and it's available by prescription for other things so um like it's available in Mexico without a prescription you know you can basically go to a pharmacy and get it so so there are a lot of options at this point for people who are trying to get an abortion and a lot of less expensive options um, and And the FDA recently, I mean, this is a victory recently, um, in December, said, well, we're going to get rid of some of the red tape around the abortion pill, which has been really swaddled in red tape since it was approved in the U.S. in 2000. Um, And and so they took away the requirement that you had to have a practitioner hand it to you in person, which is ridiculous to begin with, because basically you go home and have the abortion that's... um, it's, it's not a, a thing that happens in a clinic, right? So, um, so they've, they've taken away that restriction. And that means that now in states where it's legal, you can um, uh, go to a website such as abortionondemand.org, get on the phone with a practitioner, tell them your problem. They will overnight you the pills. You send them 139 bucks. Um, and I think they also provide a discount if you can't afford that. And um, and then you can you take the pills at home. um, If you have any problems, just as if you were getting an abortion in a clinic, If you have any problems, you would go to an emergency room. But it's extremely safe and unlikely for you to have problems. So that's actually an option right now. And you can imagine how difficult it's going to be for illegal states to regulate this. So I have a friend who's in a legal state. She gets the pills for me, she mails them to me. How is that gonna be regulated, right? Um, And one of the things we've seen is that in, um, in some of the states where they're prospectively going to ban abortion, they're also trying to slap really large penalties on people who want to provide pills to each other um, I think in Tennessee they were talking about like a twenty year 20 year sentence for provision of pills. Um, so you can see that they're really worried that this is not um, that it, this is not feasible uh, to crack down on legally.
0: So it's interesting. I want to get into the, um, I guess the connection between the fight for reproductive rights and you know, how it relates to issues like class and, and labor in America, uh, because I know you've uh, written a great deal about that. So for people that look at this issue as uh, being about religion or being about uh, you know, culture, I, I, think, I think they're getting it wrong because I think there is a relationship between um, reproductive rights and class in America.
2: Yeah. I mean, one of the problems it's, is that the popular assumptions of why abortion is under attack are, are, I think, off the mark for our current situation. So you'll hear liberal commentators say, oh, well, um, abortion is just a way to um, to get uh, economic elites to excite an evangelical base or um, wedge working class Catholics away from the Democratic Party. In other words, it's sort of a way for uh, uh, the rich to get the poor to vote for them, essentially. Um, and that means that it's, it's basically a ploy. It's um, promoters don't really care whether people have abortions, they're just using it to get the votes. Um, and I think with the leak of this draft decision, we can sort of, um, there has been even some talk of, oh, well, the, the anti-abortion movement is like the dog that caught the car, right? Um, what next? Now they can't use it as this as this uh, issue to conjure with. But I think um, that is really missing the root of why we're facing these abortion bans now. And that is that it's always at its base been a struggle about bearing and raising children. Who's going to do it? Who's going to pay for it? How is What's that going to look like? And I think the reason that we're somewhat confused about this is that we had a, a historic anomaly in the 60s. Um, you know, when the women's liberation movement arose, the birth rate was actually quite high in the US. And I mean, the high, the post-war high was like 3.6 children per woman on average. Um, and there was a split in the ruling class about population. I don't know if people remember this stuff, but there were, you know, these the population bomb right everybody was talking about the population explosion oh we should cut off aid to uh countries that have all this population like Egypt and India and they were sending um they were sending people into India to try to stop uh stop you know with with forced sterilization and bribing people to sterilize them you I know mean, just all kinds of stuff going on um Now, it's true that population sharply increased, but the reason was that the introduction of antibiotics and vaccines and sanitation meant that infant mortality dropped, um, but people were still having lots of kids because they expected some of them to die, frankly. Um, And so we had this blip, and that was the moment when we were actually fighting on this in the U.S. to get a, to get birth control and abortion rights.
0: Um, I was going to say real quickly. So that's that's around like the the 60s, 70s, when when Paul Ehrlich writes the population bomb. And there's, uh, you know, it really was uh, sort of becoming widely accepted at that time. The This whole, oh, there's going to be an overpopulation crisis type thinking.
2: Right. Exactly. And that was a 68 book. I mean, and, you know, on the on the covers, I mean, it, it, it sold a lot and they had various covers but i remember one cover was like you know uh you know the millions who are going to starve by 1970 or something you know this kind of stuff right now um in the us the the our our post war baby boom went on much longer than anybody else's it was sort of sui generous it was really amazing um and what And what that meant was that there was sort of a ruling class agreement that the population explosion was bringing crowding, crime, rebellion. You know, it was causing these uprisings in the cities. And but the interesting thing is that that all of that dissipates by 1980. Right. So that period from 1970 to 1980, the the drop in the birth rate becomes apparent. So. 1960, we have a birth rate of 3.6 children per woman by its 2.0 by 1975, and that becomes kind of obvious right then, as we're winning the uh, abortion rights nationally in 1973. So by 1980, the ruling class is mostly consolidated, again around the same pronatalist position that they always had in the US, right? It's a settler. Colonial country, and uh, there's always been this concern. We need more population. We need more population. So, um, so even though parts of the ruling class have still formally supported legal abortion, they haven't wanted to do anything that really expanded it, like making it legal to use your if you're on Medicaid to get abortions through Medicaid. So we've seen like both Republican and Democratic legislatures all through the 50 years that abortion has been legal, have all approved this ban on federal funds for abortion. So um, now the thing is that the baby bust hit Europe first. And in Europe, they had enough, um, the labor movement had enough power to really bring in some social welfare provisions, make it easier to have kids, make it easier for women to work. and in fact, it, this starts even, even before the war, the origin of the social welfare state in Sweden really can be traced to the drop in births there, which accompanied women going out to work in the thirties. And so there was kind of an agreement between the socialists who wanted like all of this stuff, like healthcare systems and you know maternity homes initially, like all of uh, childcare provision, Um, And and the ruling class was like, okay, we're going to accede to this because because of the lower birth rate here, the birth rate stayed oddly high for a developed country. I mean, even after the after the um, end of the baby boom, it still stayed a lot higher than comparable countries in Europe. And there were all these theories about, oh, the US, we have this sunny optimism, you know, and everything. But it's pretty clear the main reason that was happening was that we had lack of good access to birth control and abortion, right? Um, so, I mean, like a study in the nineties found that we had twice the rate of unintended births as they had in France or Sweden. Um, but the thing is that we have now caught up um, and this is partly due to long acting contraceptives, like the IUD implants, monthly shots. There are more options for that. The economic difficulty of raising kids, right? Um, and As a result, our birth rate is now in the European range. It's 1.64 at an all time low. And to give you an idea, like 2.1 is regarded for um, for a developed country as the as the birth rate that would have a stable population over over the long term. Um, So our birth rate is actually in a reversal now lower than France's Um, and the population growth that we do have is mostly attributable to immigration. So, um, but the response in Europe of providing a lot of stuff for, you know, like long paid family leave, free or near free childcare, um, child allowances, a check you get every month because you have a kid, um, and then of course free healthcare, that, that was a response to the lower birth rate. And in some countries, it did actually increase the birth rate. And then, but they've been very open about it. And then in some countries like Turkey or Russia, we've seen both some provision for families, but also attempts to cut back on abortion and birth control. Um, but it's all in the open. Like, unlike in the US, the provisions are basically to increase the birth rate. And politicians actually make that argument sometimes in racist terms, like Erdogan occasionally um, in Turkey, you know, will say, oh, well, it's our, you know, our blood in, you know, in opposition to the Kurds. Right. Um, So, but mostly it's not in racist terms. It's just like, oh, we, we, we need to have a stable population. In the US, in, in general, the response has been, oh, let's just make it harder for people to uh, control their control their uh, births. So, um, and and that's the cheap solution, right, to this crisis of low birth rate. What they see as a crisis of low birth rates. I don't think it's a crisis for the ninety nine percent, but it is for them. Um, so, rather than making uh, public spending to make our lives more more possible and making encouraging us to have kids by making it easier, um, we have seen them cut further and further back on on uh, abortion and birth control and no surprise we're having fewer kids as they push all of the costs onto our onto our backs and to pay out of inadequate wages right and in my group national women's liberation we saw this um, like in 2015 we started to notice that a lot of us were only having one kid or none because of the unreliable healthcare, the cost of childcare, the long hours we were working, just like all of these things, the stress and just general hostility to family life from both employers and the government. So that's that's kind of what's going on. Now, of course there's immigration, right? So um, the democratic, there is kind of a basically a split I think in in the ruling class on this point. So. There's a Democratic faction joined by some Republicans, especially sort of old line Republicans who have been pretty dedicated to using immigration to solve what they think of as this demographic crisis. Um, uh, Ben Wattenberg, who used to go on about this in the 90s, um, uh, called immigrants instant adults, you know, like basically uh, they're they're raised and educated on someone else's budget. We don't have to pay for that. Employers in the U.S. don't have to pay for that. And they arrive at the U.S. um, you know, basically of working age. Um, And so that's really what they want. They want immigrants to come at working age. And you can see, you know, they're freaking out. They want to keep out child refugees and prevent the laws that allowed people to eventually bring their families to the U.S. like Jeb Bush is a good example. He has a pro-immigration book called Immigration Wars. And he basically says, you know, well, these extended family members, they don't produce all the economic benefits that the work-based immigrants do. We just want, you know, they and they might cost money. They might need health care. They might need education. So what we really want is just the work-based immigrants. And this is why you see even anti-immigrant politicians like Trump uh, real increasing the um the quota of guest workers that are uh you know that are allowed in the United States guest worker programs make explicit you're only here to work you're not going to have any say in the society or on your workplace and your family is going to be far away and then the moment the job ends we can deport you so that's one faction that's sort of the oh let's use immigration and the fact that we can control immigration em- You cut out there for a second. Basically, I think that a lot of employers are very happy with this system where you can uh, you can have immigrant workers who don't have any rights. And and if they're guest workers, they really don't have any rights because even if for any reason they lose their job, they can be automatically deported. Um, But also workers who are undocumented also do not have as many rights on the job because they're afraid to speak up um, and they're explicitly told if you speak up, you, you know, will will call immigration on you. So I think that's you know, that they've been pretty happy about that. But there is a more nativist faction of elite Republicans um, who are worried about the coming majority minority country. Right. And and this this came up when the, the uh, murder in Buffalo, the mass racist, mass murder in Buffalo. Um, when he had, you know, referred to the replacement theory, um, and this has been like a theme. <laughs> it's been a theme actually for for uh, hundreds of years that um, that uh, oh, immigrants are going to replace us. In the um, in the 1870s, when they're banning abortion for the first time, when they make abortion illegal for the first time. They're really worried about Catholic immigrants coming and taking over and the uh, outnumbering Protestants. This is one of their big concerns. So so there's there's that's a, a, a theme. And and I think in the current politics, the way that it the way that this plays out is that, you know, having a majority minority country is going to interfere with a system that has worked very well for uh, for the employing class, where basically white voters are lured into identifying with their corporate overlords, you know, because of a common ethnic identity, right? And they can already see that this is gonna be a problem in California and Texas, which are majority people of color at this point. In California, um, organizing in immigrant communities, particularly Latinx communities has turned the state deep blue, raised the minimum wage, they have a lot of regulations on business. Um, in Texas, what has been required is frantic gerrymandering and voter suppression to keep a right-wing legislature in place. And then that protects the interests of employers um, you know, over workers of all ethnicities. So, so b- before we close out here, I guess,
0: when we're discussing this, I, I don't want people to get the wrong idea. Um, when we discuss say uh, the ruling class being uh disturbed by uh, declining birth rates and therefore having issues uh with abortion i don't want people to think that we're we're not we're not talking about like some kind of conspiracy that here we're talking about how the ruling class sort of operates so how do you sort of explain that to people in a way where they won't get the sort of impression that we're talking about some uh, tightly woven conspiratorial thing because you're definitely not saying that either.
2: No, it's not a tightly woven conspiratorial thing. And it's interesting, like, you know, religion is often the way some of these interests are expressed. Right. So, um, you know, Nancy Pelosi was getting uh, was getting told she couldn't take communion. Right. Because she voted for for abortion rights. But, um, you know, they never they never uh decided she couldn't take communion because of because of all of these other things that she you know drone strikes. I mean there's a lot of <laughs> there's a lot of stuff that 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 violates you know what you would think of as as a Catholic doctrine that that they're not paying attention to. And that's true in other religions, you know, um uh, religions that are based on Christianity and Jesus obviously are picking and choosing what parts of Jesus they want to talk about. Um, and And in um, in the 19th century, when the Catholic Church really tightened up on abortion, abortion was not regarded as, you know, a mortal sin or anything before the 1870s, when the, the birth rate went down in the largest Catholic country, which was France. And that's when this papal encyclical came out that said abortion is is completely forbidden from conception. Before that, it had been somewhat similar to to other religions. There had been sort of a phase in, you know, the idea was, oh, well, it's a, sort of going back to the Greeks, it's, an, it's a vegetable soul, then it's an animal soul, then around the fourth or fifth month with quickening or you can feel it move, then it becomes a human soul. So there was always some wiggle room in gray areas. Um, but the Catholic Church, in response to a rise in, in abortions in France, really cracked down on it. So, like, you know, this is how things are being expressed. The, the religion is how, how some of these interests are being expressed. Um, and then in terms of the, the current situation in the U.S., I think, I think there are grassroots people who are genuinely against abortion and think it's wrong. Um, but there's an enormous amount of money being poured into the organizations that have been pushing this point of view, and so um, they really regard it as something that's that's important to their agenda. And if you read, as I have, unfortunately, so you don't have to, all of these like think tank reports from all these both right wing and centrist think tanks, they are very open about the problem of, uh, of the lower birth rate. And this is going to hurt economic growth. They, they're constantly going on. It's going to make it so that um, employers are gonna have to put in more money for retirees because they don't have large families that they can be pushed back on. Um, they even talk about, oh. Well, it makes it harder for us to get rid of Social Security because if people don't have large families, then they can't be relied upon to support people in their old age. And so we have to have larger families in this country. I mean, Paul Ryan in 2017 talked about this when he was um, when he was uh, taking another whack at, at Social Security when he was Speaker of the House. So so it comes out. And if you if you listen for it, you you'll hear it frequently that they're really concerned. I mean, they talk about demographics, age structure, entitlements, um, the cost of, of Medicare and, and Social Security and all of these things. Um, and and they worry about uh, economic stagnation, which they've really, Japan, which is way ahead of us on a low birth rate and now actually has a declining population, has had you know this decade and a half of economic stagnation, that they're very worried that that is a result of having lower population in Japan has very few immigrants, doesn't allow many immigrants, although they've increased their guest workers, but, but they are, but it's very much a discussion within, um, you know, ruling class think tanks and, and capitalist and establishment think tanks. What are we going to do? This is actually, this is actually going to, going to decrease economic growth. So that, that would be my answer for that.
0: So so just to clarify, I mean, it sounds like in a way uh, the ruling class, you know, if, if they're for restricting abortion rights, a lot of this ultimately driven by, um, I, I mean, this is a crude way of putting it, but uh, there's this idea that there's declining birth rates and that means that there's less <laughs> Uh, bodies that we can exploit for their labor right I mean is that sort of the the ruling class mindset there
2: yeah I mean I would say that it's less about um about the number of workers because they have found a lot of ways to increase the number of workers or decrease the number of workers and that it's like 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 Wattenberg says you know that um that takes a long time, like, you know, 18 years to have an adult. So it's much faster to import immigrants, do guest worker programs or export the, the, uh, the production process. So it's not so much about workers. It's much more about that. Capitalism has always relied on growth to be healthy. It requires growth to be healthy. And that growth has, since the dawn of capitalism relied on population growth and what we're seeing throughout most of the world now, um, with the exception of, of the African continent, every other continent is having the, the growth rate is slacked and, and we're seeing flat or even declining populations. Um, I mean, China is a great example where, you know, they used to have an enormous uh, amount of growth rate in, in their population. Now, now that's flattened out. Um, and they're frantically trying to figure out what to do about it. But uh, so so this is um, this is like a worldwide problem, and it's worldwide concern for uh, people who are trying to administer capitalism. Um, and it's the first time we've seen this under capitalism. Populations decline. Obviously, we've we've seen it with plagues and wars and stuff. But but an overall decline in the population. Um, it's the first time and, and the, the earlier examples, um, which somewhat preceded capitalism, but might be indicative, like, uh, like the black death in Europe really increased the, the, um, the power of, of the, uh, wage earning and peasant classes. Right. So, so they may be a little worried about that, but, but in general, uh, what we're talking about is, is slow declines in the population. And that is really um, their main problem there is, is figuring out how to pay for retirees. And which, you know, they could they have plenty of money. It's not a question of, of money, but they don't want to, right? They want to force that back on the family. Um, and, you know, where is, where is the general growth? Who are we going to sell these things to? What, you know, the, the general growth that capitalism requires?
0: Uh, just the last two things I wanted to touch on here, um, since we were talking about the population bomb and, and how that the release of that book sort of um, is happening while uh, there's this big push with regards to vs. Wade is is there a connection between those spheres of overpopulation and the the decision on Rover Wade or how are we to look at that?
2: Well, it's interesting. I'm just rereading um. This book by Lawrence later called Abortion Two, which is about the the struggle in the sixties and seventies. Um, he was a he was a, a leading proponent of abortion rights, and and it, so it's a sort of an inside view. And one of the things he says a couple of times in there is, well, there might have been a time when w- we would have to worry about would there be enough population, and that would be an argument against making abortion legal, but but that time is over because of this. So it's not really an argument anymore. So clearly there in his mind, there was an argument to be made and, and that could have been made and then had been made in, in previous decades um, that had been, was canceled by, by the fact that there was such a high birth rate both there and, and in other countries. So, um, so I do think that that did open, open things up and, in the decision in Roe versus Wade, they do say they do make a point that you know sometimes states might have an interest in in births and in increasing the population, but um, but you know we're we're not going to go there right now, <laughs> essentially. Um, but they do they do make a nod to that, and uh, uh, so you know, and one of the obvious uh, needs and things that came came up in the in the earlier earlier period in the uh, turn of the 19th century when there was a big debate about birth control was well we need we need higher population to fill the armies of our newly Imperial country um, and you know Teddy Roosevelt goes on and on and is giving awards to families with 12 children and you know he's very much for um, for people having lots and lots of babies and you can see that that Sort of serves the what what as the U.S. is is starting to find its feet as an empire and send people to long, but you know, off to the Philippines or or um, you know, into the Caribbean or South America. That that is that is a concern. Like, do we have enough young men to send?
0: Yeah, I guess that leads into the the last thing I wanted to mention. Yeah. Um, It's interesting because, and I I sort of was wondering if you uh, have ever dealt with with people like this or dealt with these arguments. I think there's a whole segment of the right that is trying to like paint this picture that, oh, actually uh, the the pro-abortion people uh, or or the pro-reproductive rights people, they're actually mired in racism. And, And Margaret Sanger was a eugenicist How are we supposed to respond to these sort of arguments that the right makes like that, that one in particular?
2: Yeah, I mean, that that is, first of all, you can see that they're stretching because Margaret Sanger was never for abortion. She always thought it was too much of a nervous strain, as she said. Um, And even when she saw it done safely in hospitals in the Soviet Union in the in the 20s, she uh, she she thought birth control was the answer. So. So clearly, they're, they're making a stretch because Sanger's not, not pro abortion. Um, but then the other thing is that, uh, you know, Black women have had really good responses to this, including the um, reproductive justice group Sister Song, which is based in Atlanta. Um, and they have faced, faced down these right to lifers who put up billboards in, their, in Black communities saying, you know, um, uh, the most dangerous place in a, a, a place for a black child is a, is in the womb and stuff like that. You know, basically, really um, attacking black women for having abortions, and and their response is, look, you know, we we, we get abortions because we want to plan our families, and and our answer to this is not, you know, re- reproductive justice is about. Both being able to not have kids when we don't want to, but also being able to have kids because there's a history of forced sterilization in this country, um, and to have them in safe and humane and healthy conditions. Um, and these people who are trying to take abortion away are not for any of those things, right? They're not for. <laughs> they're, they don't care about us. They really, they really are just pretending. Um, Pretending to care about black babies, but as soon as they're born, you know they'll be cheering on the cops um, when they when they beat them up and shoot them. So, um, so I think you know I think that 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 argument um, has been has been pretty you know has been pretty much debunked. And and I would look to black women to lead on making the counter argument because um, because they they're 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 on it. They're taking it on.
0: So, in closing, are there any, I, I guess, key aspects uh, that you think maybe people miss when talking about the history of um, the struggle for reproductive rights? Uh, is what, what do you think some some key aspects of this history are that maybe a, a lot of us miss or overlook?
2: Well, I think the whole approach from um, from after Roe was passed. I think the whole approach has been um, has been a little sort of oriented towards uh, you know nonprofits appealing to foundations and rich people and and um, you know to judges and legislators and not really um, organizing ordinary people and ordinary women around these issues so the way that we what abortion in the 60s, um, because the first victory was in in 1970, the New York law was completely overturned, um, was was completely different from that. It was a mass movement. It was ordinary women. It was breaking up hearings of liberals who wanted to liberalize the law and demanding full repeal of all abortion laws. And. Um, and there were a lot of people breaking the law publicly, including clergy doing referrals, doctors doing abortions, uh, women speaking out about their illegal abortions. Um, so so there was a lot of ferment and and general upheaval around the issue. And it really changed people's minds when they heard their friends and family members talking about I had an abortion. Um, because making abortion illegal does not really decrease the rate of abortions that much, um, if at all, uh, because people are very determined when they don't want to have a kid to not to not have one. So um, so there were, you know, just as today about one in one in th- between one in three and one in four women have had an abortion. So um, that 30 uh, percent you know, when they started talking about their abortions with each other, they realized, oh, this is a common thing. Um, so I think that we've backed away a little bit from, in some cases, a lot from from the mo- the way the movement uh, operated back then. And so we're now starting to see a little bit more militancy and and really addressing other people rather than Pitching it to the power structure, um, so I think I think that's been good. You, starting to use the word abortion rather than just sort of this softening of it by just saying choice, I think has been very important because, first of all, people don't necessarily know what you're talking about, um, but but second, you know, you're not going to be able to defend this right unless you can say the word, um, and so I think that's been very important and. And generally, I think things are are getting better on this on this point. But of course, we're at a crisis, right? So, um, and then the other thing is, you know, I think it does feel a little gloom and doom. um, But you know, we've had some victories, you know, over the last decade with the writing on the wall about the Supreme Court. A lot of states have shored up their abortion rights laws. They're either getting rid of the band, old bans, making some positive law. I mean, California, New York, Illinois, to name three big states, have uh, have abortion rights, you know, secured. Um, and then Connecticut just passed a law saying that uh, the governor cannot extradite people for getting or giving abortions that are legal in the state. We're working on a similar law in New York. Um So there are a lot of um, there are a lot of positive things happening also. And then this big victory in December making uh, with the FDA, making the abortion pill basically available by mail. That wasn't that was an enormous thing. Um, And then I think um, I was really surprised and pleased to see that the Boston Globe just their editorial board just wrote an editorial calling for the FDA to make abortion pills available over the counter, so not even by prescription. And um, my group, National Women's Liberation, has been calling for that, but most feminist groups have not yet made that into a demand. Um, and we're circulating a pledge, um, basically pledge to aid and abet abortion, hashtag aid and abet abortion. And I can tell you that people say they are willing to break anti-abortion laws, they are so mad about this. So I think it's going to be extremely interesting as uh as these legislatures crack down and as um states start to try to arrest people for having abortions or get or or giving them um what kind of civil disobedience there's going to be, what kind of conflict there's going to be, because I I cannot I do not think that they're are ready for the amount of resistance there's going to be when they start to really try to enact these laws on the ground in terms of, uh, you know, arresting people and, and starting to bring people to trial.
0: Out of curiosity, and I, I promise to let you go after this, uh, because I know we've went a little bit longer, but uh, it's, it's interesting when you said we sort of have to, to say it, though, what, what we're actually talking about, abortion rights, you know, we, we can't be um, dressing things up in softer words. And I, I have to admit, I, I was kind of guilty of that in this conversation. I kept saying reproductive rights. Um, and, you know, other people say, oh, I'm pro-choice. Well, why do you think there is this sort of fear um, over saying, you know, we want abortion rights?
2: Well, um, I think I think it is part of this trying to appeal to uh, sort of the more respectable uh, parts of the society and, and, and really soften that, make it sound less unreasonable. Um, you know, the, the term choice arose in, uh, it was actually the, a slogan raised by the, um, the, the abortion action arm of the Socialist Workers Party, um, sort of, so it wasn't, it wasn't feminist, it was, it was actually Trotskyist um, who came up with that term. and, they i think their idea was to appeal to a much larger group of people but the but the problem is that it, it most people are not paying attention closely enough to know what your jargon is they want to hear what it's about and um and so when they run ads that say oh yes you know we're, oh, it's a very difficult decision blah 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 we we um you know it's all about choice People are not even going to realize that this is something about abortion. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I mean, they're busy; they're half listening to this. Um, so, so I, I, think that we have to be very straightforward and 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 talk about what we're we're actually talking about. Um, I also think people say choice because they don't want to say pro-abortion, but you could just say abortion rights. Um, But the idea that you're pro-abortion, I think maybe people think that that sounds like you're for zero population growth. You think everybody should get an abortion. You think kids are a bad idea or something like that. So I do think that that is another concern that people have.
0: Well, Jenny Brown, I want to thank you again for coming on Parallax Views. How can my listeners uh, keep up with the work you're doing? And if there's any other um, resources that you would recommend to people uh, if this issue matters to them?
2: Yeah, so my group is uh, National Women's Liberation is at womensliberation.org. If you're interested in the situation on the abortion pills, plancpills.org. So plan C, like the the letter C, pills.org is a good place. They have training programs for ambassadors of information. Um, You can get all the details there. And also if you are um, if you want to order pills online, abortionondemand.org is one place. And then um aid access, which is based in in Europe, actually sends pills to all 50 states um right now. So um aid aidaccess.org is the is the address there.
0: Well, that does it for this edition of parallax News. i hope you enjoyed my conversations with daisy pitkin author of on the line a story of class solidarity and two women's epic fight to build a union it gets the highest recommendation from yours truly it's just i don't even know how to describe it other than to say it packs a real punch i mean a real emotional punch it's a powerful read and also, of course, I hope you enjoyed the conversation with Jenny Brown, author of such books as Without Apology, The Abortion Struggle Now. As always, if you can, please, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com slash parallaxviews. If you appreciate the work here I do, then that is the best way to help keep this show going. So. Uh, You can find all the information for how you can support the show financially at, again, patreon.com slash parallaxviews. One more time, that's patreon.com slash parallaxviews. And with that being said... Until next time... You've been listening to Parallax Views with Jeralax Views. To parallax Jeralax Views.
1: The way out is not simply to say, don't do it, just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. Right? You so, know, you know, we have to confront